Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. One of my favorite prayers in the Book of Common Prayer is this one. Almighty and eternal God, so draw our hearts to you, so guide our minds, so fill our imaginations, so control our wills that we may be wholly yours, utterly dedicated unto you. And then use us, we pray, as you will, and always to your glory and the welfare of your people through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The title of that prayer is A Prayer of Self-Dedication, which might sound strange to modern ears. Self-dedication sounds like it would involve more self-determination. But the prayer suggests that before our lives can offer glory to God or improve the welfare of God's people in this world, every aspect of those lives needs to be taken over by God. It's a prayer... Not that we relinquish control of ourselves, which would be radical enough, but a prayer asking God to take the initiative and take over control of my heart, my mind, my imagination, my will. It's a prayer to be a lot less free, isn't it? Or at least a lot less free from God. Maybe it only makes sense if whatever freedoms we think we enjoy are illusions. In our reading from the book of Acts today, we encounter a slave girl. She's about as unfree as a person could be in her world. First of all, she's a girl. So she's young and she's female, both of which severely restrict what she can do or say or own. She's also a slave, so she's the property of somebody else. And she has the gift of divination. Being able to foretell the future sounds like something that would increase a person's freedom. Imagine the power and influence we'd have if we knew what the future held. Why else did people line up to pay the girl's owners for her predictions? But for this girl, her gift just made her more valuable to her masters, which only increased their incentive to keep her enslaved. Paul got annoyed with the situation, we're told, and he cast the spirit out of the girl cutting off a valuable revenue stream for her owners. And since they were apparently people of social capital, the magistrates come to their aid, not the girls. Paul and Silas are flogged, thrown into the innermost cell of a Philippian jail, their feet fastened into stalks. Do you have a reasonably vivid image of this scene in your mind right now? I think it's important that you do. Because they were apparently beaten senseless. What else would account for the fact that these two freshly tortured men in the stocks begin to sing? Can you see them there? Black and blue and delirious, not just with pain, but with praise. Here's my question. Were they free? I think it's important that we not answer too quickly or too flippantly that question, especially if we've never been in such a situation ourselves. 
but it's just as important that we do address it. And our response needs to struggle with the fact that neither Paul nor Jesus seem to challenge slavery as an institution, at least not in the biblical record. This fact was used by a lot of our Christian forebears to defend the practice of slavery for a long, long time in this country. Slave owners used to even use the Bible to keep their slaves in line. The sixth chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians was a favorite. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, in singleness of heart as you obey Christ, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. More than a few slave owners apparently did not read on a few verses further where we read, and masters, do the same to them. Stop threatening them. For you know that both of you have the same master in heaven, and with him there's no partiality. So a radical assumption of the New Testament was that slaves and slave owners were equals before God, answerable to the same master. But still, there don't, why don't there seem to be any abolitionists in the Bible? Amy Jill Levine is an important contemporary scholar of the New Testament. She teaches just a few hours from here over at Vanderbilt. What makes her all the more interesting is that she's a self-described feminist and an Orthodox Jew. I've been reading her most recent book, The Difficult Words of Jesus, and in it she dedicates a whole chapter to slavery, since Jesus himself said, whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. Dr. Levine tells us the Greek word for slave, doulos, appears 118 times in the New Testament. 30 times in the Gospel of Matthew alone. So it's not like the concept never came up. If, like me, you don't read Greek, you've been shielded from the pervasiveness of the term since it's often translated more gently as servant. Maybe you've heard the song of Simeon said at evening prayer or sung at evensong, Lord, you now have set your servant free to go in peace as you have promised. It rings differently when translated master, Despota, as in despot. Master, now you are dismissing your slave in peace, according to your word. Slaves are everywhere in the New Testament, which might be because nearly a third of the Roman Empire was enslaved at the time. Maybe this is why slaves show up in, in metaphors, in parables, and as persons like that slave girl who tells fortunes in Philippi. But trusting the Bible doesn't mean never challenging the Bible's blind spots or omissions or even its outright proclamations from time to time. Everything we read in the Bible, actually everything we read, period, emerges from a context, from a culture, from the networks of assumptions and practices and norms that all humans swim in all of the time. Reading scriptures like overhearing half of a phone conversation, as one New Testament scholars put it, since there's no getting around it, to interpret the Bible faithfully, we have to do our best to figure out who's on the other end of the line and what situation's actually being addressed. In the case of slavery, one important factor may be that few people in first century Palestine could even conceive of a world without slavery. We might look down smugly on their small imaginations, but is it really so different from the fact that 
We probably have a hard time imagining a world in which no one makes a minimum wage or gets astonishingly wealthy. Our imaginations have been shaped and limited just as much by our economy as those of first century Christians and Jews had been by the one in which they lived and moved and had their being. And when I accept the fact of my captive imagination, when I sit with it long enough for it to register how much I'm a product of the culture in which I live, well, for all my frustrations with several of Paul's offhand comments in an epistle or two, his mind looks to be infinitely freer of his culture than mine is from this one. I look back at the story in Acts, and we see him and Silas singing in the stocks until an earthquake shatters the walls, opens the doors, unfastens everybody's chains. I see them sitting still after there's nothing left of the jail to hold them, telling a suicidal guard, don't harm yourself, friend. We're all still here. I see that stunned jailer the one who's used to living on the right side of the prison doors, with the keys to the free world jangling at his waist, saying, Dear God, I think I may be the one who needs to be saved here. Next thing we know, the jailer's whole household's being baptized and food's being set out for a feast and everyone's rejoicing, not because Paul and Silas are free, but because all these others are. All these others who didn't even understand the nature of their captivity until two men, freshly blossomed bruises still on their bodies, singing hymns with their ankles bound in stocks, showed them a different kind of freedom. A freedom that the chains and chariots of the empire were helpless in the face of. Now it's none of my business to tell anybody else whose freedom has been taken away in ways that mine has not how God expects them to respond. It's not my place to tell Amy Jill Levine whether she should bolt from or work for change within her synagogue where she can't carry the Torah scroll and has to sit on the women's side of the room. The work I have to do is to ask what aspects of myself have I given over to the broader culture in which I live rather than surrendering them to God. Like a lot of you, last week I found my mind spinning with rage at the news from Texas. I was ready to burn down an institution or two in this country, again. Rage was also still spinning in me from a recent story that got less press. A law went into effect in Tennessee, making it a felony and increasing fines for sleeping out on public property with zero corresponding effort from our legislature, to my knowledge to offer any help to people experiencing homelessness at all. I kind of liked imagining the prophet Isaiah barging into the state house, telling our lawmakers what God thinks of people who grind the faces of the poor. So my mind was coiled, ready to strike, but I wondered to what and to whom it was captive, at least in that particular moment. To God, to the powers of this world. And in the midst of my righteous rage, I made the mistake of reading Pima Chodron, who happens to be a Buddhist, but one whose words stung because they sounded so much like the Jesus I claim as my master. 
When we hold our opinions with aggression, she wrote, no matter how valid our cause, we are simply adding more aggression to the planet and violence and pain increase. The way to stop the war is to stop hating the enemy. That's done. Because this is not a sidebar truth to the gospel. It's it's one of those truths that pushes its way persistently to us through every culture and context throughout the New Testament. It's what Jesus taught us explicitly. It's what Jesus lived out to the cross. It's what Paul passed on to the Romans when he said, render to no one evil for evil. And it's what he and Silas sang into being one day in a Philippian jail, setting the soul of the very person who was keeping them in prison there free. Friends, I'm not here to tell you that your rage is wrong or to tell you what God wants you to do with it. You may need to bring down an institution. I'm not here to tell you that your enslavement or the enslavement of anyone besides myself is something to be born joyfully with a song. What I am saying is that when some fool for Christ from 20 centuries ago produces an earthquake in my mind, I may get to glimpse for a moment just how captive that mind is and what violent values fill my imagination far, far too often. And even from within that glimpse, I can't always tell just what Jesus will have me do next. But I may see the kind of transformation for which I must at least learn how to pray. Maybe by pleading one more time. Almighty and eternal God, So draw our hearts to you, so guide our minds, so fill our imaginations, so control our wills that we may be wholly yours, utterly dedicated unto you. And then use us, we pray, as you will, and always to your glory and the welfare of your people, through our Lord, our Master, our Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.